I hope you went beyond the easy answer. I hope you didn't stop with Jesus. Of course, following Jesus is worth everything you've got, and that is why you gave him your heart. That is why you responded to his call on your life. But I would remind you that in doing that, in accepting Jesus, in giving him your heart, you stand to get a new one. Do you remember Ezekiel 36, 26? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. There are all kinds of ways of reading that scripture, and over the years I have read it all kinds of ways. But as I started thinking about what it means to live a wholehearted life, this is what I've been considering. What if this new heart I was given in exchange for that heart of stone, this new heart that before it was ever mine was his, sorry, and therefore because it was his was full of the purest motives, what if that heart was fashioned uniquely to be given over to some great passion? What if that heart, different from every other heart, has a specific mission, a specific way in which to participate in creation? And what if my failure to follow that heart into that mission, my failure to give my whole self over to that passion would result in my portion of the big story never being told, would result in a hole in the universe that my creativity was meant to fill. What if it's just plain lazy to say my heart belongs to Jesus and leave it there when Jesus is crying out to you and to me saying, I want you to discover the purpose, the call that I put inside that heart and then follow it in pursuit of my great and glorious cause. Keep that in mind as we look at one more wholehearted woman. We have actually talked about her before. Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha were the center of our discussion at this event last year. We talked about Jesus as a dinner guest, about priorities, about multitasking and unitasking. I think we'd all agree that after that night, both Mary and Martha most likely lived their lives a little differently. Today, I want to focus on another incident in the life of Mary, the one in which she shows us, I think, what that difference was and what it means to live a life that is wholehearted, a life in which she embraced her imperfection and told her story. It is included in both the Gospels of Matthew and John, and this is how John tells it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Leave her alone, 
Jesus replied, It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now this is the scene. It is the third year of Jesus' ministry. He and his disciples are making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. They, along with thousands of other devout Jews. It was not an option for them. It was mandatory. And all these people heading to Jerusalem were going to need a place to stay. Bethany was only a couple of miles from Jerusalem, and because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were Jesus' friends, it was not unlikely that they were coming there to stay for Passover. So on this Saturday night before Passover, the Saturday night before Jesus would be crucified the next Friday, the men are enjoying their meal, talking to each other about the kinds of things that men talk about, and in walked Mary. Now, ordinarily in a situation like this, the conversation would have stopped immediately. In first century Palestine, women were generally not welcome at a meal where men were gathered. They all knew that, kind of like you and I know that you don't wear white shoes before Easter. The men would probably simply have waited for the woman to put down the food or deliver the message or do whatever it was she came in to do and then leave before they continued the conversation. But this was not an ordinary situation for a couple of reasons. First of all, this occasion was probably pretty rowdy, probably livelier than a meal like this would ordinarily be because not many days before, the male host for the evening, that would be Lazarus, had been a dead man. Three days dead. Three days in a tomb with his sisters and the neighbors and probably some professional mourners all weeping and wailing up at the house dead. Three days. Long enough to, as Mary would point out, cause a person to stinketh. But he was alive now. Alive and in the presence of the man who called him out of that tomb, out of those grave clothes, out of the smell of death. Alive and partying before the arrival of the solemn holiday of Passover. And because of all that, I'm guessing that Lazarus probably didn't care one way or another who came into the room and what she did when she got there. I'm guessing that when you are having supper with the one who called you out of the tomb and back into life, things like who gets to sit at the supper table and who has to eat in the kitchen just don't matter much anymore. The second reason that this was not an ordinary situation, that is why nobody who knew her would have expected Mary to come in, set down the bread and olive oil, and make a gracious exit like a nice Jewish girl, is because Mary really wasn't a nice Jewish girl anymore, at least not by some standards. Mary had been changed by what had happened the last time all these people had been gathered in that house for a meal. She had been drawn into the circle by Jesus' message of inclusion. And even if all the men there didn't fully embrace it themselves, they knew better than to offer any objection to her presence. So Mary comes in, and she walks straight to the couch where Jesus is reclining, and she kneels down in front of him, and the men are all thinking, that's fine, it's okay, she can sit there and listen. But of course, Mary doesn't just sit there and listen. She begins by uncovering 
her head. And then she takes down her hair. And then she begins unwinding the long strands so that they're hanging over her shoulder right there in front of God, literally, (laughs) and everybody. Now, you probably know that this is not something a righteous woman of her time ever did in public. And she did it in private only in front of her husband. Now, imagine the scene. The men who were seconds before being loud and boisterous are suddenly speechless. They have no idea how to respond to such a flagrant disregard of social convention. It is one thing to allow Mary to join them while Jesus is sharing from the Torah or expounding on the evils of the day, but this behavior is beyond inappropriate, and it's only the beginning. From the folds of her robe, Mary takes out a box, a box, according to Matthew's retelling of the story, made of alabaster. The alabaster came most likely from a limestone cave in Egypt, nearly 400 miles away, and it contained calcium, which would, of course, make it particularly hard and difficult to break. Inside the box is nard, a fragrant oil derived from a plant that was native to northern India, which is over 6,000 miles away. It was used for cosmetic, medicinal, and burial purposes, and it was very, very expensive. As Judas so helpfully pointed out, the nard in that box was worth the equivalent of an entire year's wage. Now think about that. Think about what you make in one year from this box and what's inside it is worth that. It is most likely that the nard had been purchased by her family for Mary's wedding day, and it would have been at least a part, perhaps all, of her dowry, and therefore a most precious possession, something kind of like an old-fashioned hope chest. So, from the folds of her robe, she takes out an alabaster box filled with nard. It is sealed shut, and the only way to get to its contents is to break it. So she breaks it. Whether she uses a hammer or whether she just drops it, we don't know. We just know that she breaks it. She breaks her most precious possession so that its contents could be poured out on Jesus. The men are watching with their jaws hanging open. The woman has not just flaunted social conventions, but has done so in ways that are, well, downright suggestive, can we say? Not to mention, again, as Judas has so helpfully pointed out, wasteful. They could not have imagined anything worse. Most men, because we know they don't have much of an imagination, couldn't. But, sorry. But, but Mary, Mary has one more flagrant expression of devotion to make. She takes her hair and she uses it to wipe Jesus' feet. That is, she, an unmarried woman, touches Jesus an unmarried man. So that's it. That does it. She's crossed the line. She should be ashamed. 
Surely not even Brene Brown would disagree with that. But Mary wasn't ashamed. What she was, was engaged. What she was, was joyful. If we go back again to our Sunday school images, I think we all probably tend to see Mary as the pampered baby sister of most of the sitcoms of our adolescence. On the flannel board of my mind, she looks a lot like a combination of Rachel from Friends and Julia Roberts from Steel Magnolias. <laughs> That's just my mind. But consider these things that make Mary a target for not just the harsh words of Judas, but for all manner of shame. First, she lived in a country occupied by a foreign army. And second, she was a follower of a religious teacher who had been labeled a rebel and who had been targeted for assassination. And finally, this is probably the biggest thing, because there's never any mention of the parents of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and because some scholars believe that Martha was a widow by this time, we can guess that Mary is probably way past the usual age at which Jewish girls marry. In her world, a woman's future was determined by the future of the man to whom she was attached, father, husband, brother, son. So her hope for a future as comfortable as her past and present rested on her ability to marry a man of means and a man of means expected a dowry. The nard in the alabaster box was at least a part of her dowry and it had just seeped into the dirt floor of the house in Bethany. She may well have just sealed her fate to a life of spinsterhood and childlessness. In other words, shame. Except that Mary had experienced a truth deeper and wider and fuller than what the other occupants of that house saw. Mary knew that something was about to happen that would change not just her life, but the world. And not just the world of first century Palestine, but the world of every day after, including this day in 21st century America. Listen to what Jesus said to Judas in verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Somehow Mary knows what the others don't. Somehow Mary understands that the kingdom of which Jesus has spoken will not be a kingdom like that of Rome. Somehow Mary knows that Jesus is on his way to his death. And before he goes, she wants him to know that she is all in. That she is holding nothing back. That what he has given her, a place at the table, is worth everything she has. Is worth her whole heart. In Matthew's recounting of Mary's anointing, the rebuke that Jesus offers to Judas includes these words. 
She has done a beautiful thing to me. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Can you imagine what Mary felt in that moment? To go from being criticized and ridiculed to being defended by the Son of God? All in a matter of seconds? Jesus says the words to Judas, but it's really Mary to whom he's speaking. And you know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying... That's my girl. There's not a woman in this room who wouldn't want to hear Jesus say about her, she has done a beautiful thing to me. That is to say, she has loved me, served me, honored me with her whole heart. But before you get in line for that, I want you to think about what it cost Mary and what it will cost you because it will cost you. Did you know that the human heart beats about 100,000 times a day? Did you know that in the course of a lifetime, your heart will pump 1 million barrels of blood, enough to fill three super tankers? And the equivalent to the amount that would run if you turned your kitchen faucet on wide open and left it running for 45 years. Perhaps it is because of that incredible capacity that we use the heart as the metaphor for the seat of our emotions. It holds our strongest loves and our deepest fears, our strangest preferences and our darkest impulses. It houses our most powerful memories, the ones that bring us comfort and the ones that keep us awake at night. It harbors every dream and every desire. It is your most precious possession. It is your alabaster box. Which in light of what happened to Mary's box might make you stop and think, maybe I don't need Jesus to say I've done a beautiful thing. In fact, I'm sure I don't, just knowing I've done a good job's enough. Does that sound like something Deborah would say? Or you might try the self-deprecation route. You know, I'm just a wife and mother, and I'm, I'm just a Sunday school teacher. There's nothing special inside my box. Jesus wouldn't even be interested. What if that had been Hannah's attitude? How about this one? My box has some pretty ugly stuff in it. All the mistakes I've made, all the hurts I've felt, there is nothing in there that Jesus would want. What if Rahab had said that? Or this one, which would be so very hard to admit. I worked hard for this box. I gave up everything for this box. It, it cost me a lot. Jesus wouldn't expect me to just give it back. Would Mary, the mother of Jesus, have said that? What we know for sure is that every last one of us is saying, I know how this works. 
Alabaster boxes get broken. And broken means pain. I think I'll pass. You want to believe that you can choose, that you can actually keep your heart from breaking by building fences and turning on all the outside lights, following the rules, staying away from the fast lane. Yet, let's be honest, we know it's not true. Your heart will be broken. It will be broken on the hard edges of relationships or on the sharp points of illness. It will be shattered from the blunt force of financial loss or crushed by the weight of unfulfilled dreams. You can't prevent it. All you get to decide is what comes pouring out. Which brings us back to Mary. The nard that came pouring out of Mary's alabaster box would have soaked into Jesus' hair and skin. It was a fragrance so strong that it couldn't have been washed off. It would have lingered for a very long time, at least a week. What that means is that after the horrible events of the days to come, the trials, the beatings, the humiliation of being stripped naked, the only thing Jesus wore to the cross was the scent of Mary's perfume. When your heart is broken, when my heart is broken, what is going to come pouring out? Is it going to be a sweet-smelling fragrance? Is it going to be rich and aromatic? Is it going to be healing? Is it going to linger so that other people, people we might never see or know, will take in its scent and be blessed? Will they know that we have lived wholehearted lives because we embraced every ounce of imperfection, every inch of limitation, every moment of not enough in order to tell our stories, to share the journey, to make the connections that prove we are worthy of love and belonging. I hope so. I really hope so.